the Speakernomics Podcast, the official podcast of the National Speakers Association, brought to you by Leadership Books. I'm Kenneth Kinney, but friends call me Shark. This is the show where we dive deep into the world of professional speaking, where you not only survive as a professional speaker, but where you thrive and grow a speaking business so you too can change the world. On today's episode, we're going to dive deeper with Hannah Pryor. She's been described as a little spicy, a little sweet, and increasingly sought after. She's a workplace performance expert, an award-winning two-times TEDx and global keynote speaker, a coach, and an author. She's known for a science-backed approach to improving the performance habits and actions of hungry high achievers. Henna, welcome to the show. And did you ever dream that after we had our group dinner at Influence just a couple of years ago, where I met you, that it would ever turn into this? I never would have dreamed it, Shark. I'm so happy to be here. And yeah, that fateful night at the NSA Influence Conference turned into a friendship. I'm so grateful. Dinner with sharks. So, Hannah, let's dive in. Have you ever felt a little awkward and wondered if it was a weakness you had to fix or an asset to help you grow? Embracing your awkwardness may seem counterintuitive, but it could help you rocket the growth of your speaking business. Before we jump in, make sure to go to speakernomics.com. That's where you can find the tips, insights, and knowledge to help you become a better speaker and build a better business and get paid to speak. Henna, how does someone embrace their good awkward? Yeah, the good awkward is uh, a mantra, it's a movement, and it's a lifestyle if you're trying to be a professional speaker. So a definition might be helpful here. Let's start with the inverse. What is bad awkward? Bad awkward is when we have a moment, whether we're on stage, whether we're interacting with potential customers, let's say we say the wrong thing. We mispronounce someone's name. We stick our foot in it, as we all will do at some point because we're human. Bad awkward occurs when that situation essentially contaminates the future. It makes us avoid such a situation in the future or not raise our hand to speak or put our name into the hat. Good awkward means life is inherently uncertain and awkwardness exists inside of that uncertainty. So eliminating it isn't an option. Learning how to embrace it, lean into it, and get good at it when those moments occur is a catalyst for our professional growth. How do you do that as a speaker? Yeah, as a speaker, honestly, it has to do with really creating small trainable moments to be agile when we need to be. So here's something that's just a fact right now. We are dealing with in society a decrease in social musculature. What I mean by this is People don't have to interact with each other very much if they don't want to. As speakers, obviously, we are interacting with people. But on the whole, we stare at our phones when we're in the grocery store line. We put in our headphones at the coffee shop. We go to somebody's house, and instead of ringing the doorbell to pick them up, we text here, here from the driveway, right? This is the world we now live in. And what this is creating is a lack of ability to stay on our feet in moments of uncertainty. And so what we need to do is double down on building our agility muscles in social situations so that when we do flub up on stage or we do stick our foot in it, we have the strength to adapt when we need to the most. So you recently spoke to a team from the special forces and God bless all of them that that do serve. What can someone do to prepare for an audience that isn't normally considered a match to their history or experience, you know, or in their normal wheelhouse. And I've known you a couple of years. I've never heard of you or seen you wearing camouflage or, <laughs> or black eye makeup underneath. Why do, and why do you think they hired you to deliver a speech? You said this was an honor for you. Yeah. So, so let's, let's just level set here. Speaking of awkward, 
I have not been nervous for a speaking engagement in some time. I was so nervous for this. So nervous thinking, what do they know who I am? I have not only never been in the military, I don't have a family member who's been in the military. I know friends, but I wouldn't even call them my good friends. Right. I, I'm thinking this is super out of my wheelhouse. But I, I was approached by this group of, you know, 75 percent Green Beret leaders who wanted me to come speak to their team. And I thought, OK, I need to prepare like any speaker. Right. I need to prepare. And I went on Google. I started Googling the special forces. I thought this isn't enough. This isn't enough. So I thought, how do I be elite? These are elite people. I need to be elite. So what I did was I called on community. This is one of the most beautiful things of communities like NSA and others. I went into all my communities and said, hey, who knows someone that was either in the special forces or has worked with the special forces? And within 48 hours, I kid you not, I had either phone or written conversations with Elizabeth McCormick, who I believe is part of the NSA community. Yeah, I'm the one that recommended her. Oh, yeah, you're the one who recommended it. It was you, Shark. You're the one who told me to. So she was great. She got back to me. Uh, Stephen Drum is a former Navy SEAL chief. I spoke, spoke to Vanessa Mahan. She's a former female fighter pilot and a friend of mine, Andy Reese, who is also a former military. All four of them gave me such great insight about what do these people really deal with on a personal level? What's really happening behind the scenes? The stuff that Google did not tell me at all. And that was so advantageous going into those rooms. I don't think I could have done it with confidence if not for their help. So if you were going to give advice to someone as to how to find that expertise outside of Google, where does someone normally go if they get picked to speak at the, you know, yeah. French Baking Association and they don't know how to do anything other than microwave food? Not saying that that's me, but. Sure. Yeah, I, I would say, you know, this is one opportunity where we can all be level playing field because it doesn't have to do with knowledge that you were born with. I don't I didn't know a darn thing about this organization, but we all have the ability to double down on ostentatious curiosity. Make a show of it. Go nuts. Ask everybody you know, who do you know? Can I talk to them? And I think, you know, a lot of us are afraid to shoot that shot because it could feel awkward. It could feel uncomfortable. But every single one of these folks were more than happy to give me five minutes of their time, more than happy to share their expertise. And so we have to get out of our own way a bit and think, is curiosity doing a Google search like every other speaker might be doing? Or is curiosity going where they're not going? By definition, that's real curiosity is getting so into the unknown that we discover things we wouldn't have found otherwise. And anyone can do that. Yeah. Well, and another place to go, obviously, is the Facebook group that NSA has. Mm -hmm. You ask any question and you're going to get 50 answers from from other great speakers. Mm -hmm. So you've had a pretty good trajectory in your price. And we're talking about price and pineapples, of course. Of course. But per your speaking event from just a couple of years ago, you were at just a few hundred pineapples, and now you're at quite a few thousand pineapples. But your your speaking event price increased substantially over those last couple of years. What advice can you give someone who's learning to help them charge more pineapples per speech? Yeah, I, I have three pieces of advice that I would share around this. And the first is ask for feedback after every event, but I have a specific way that I ask for it. So first of all, asking for feedback is awkward. I'm a recovering people pleaser. I want validation. I want them to tell me I've done a good job. I'm not ashamed to admit that. But the single most valuable follow-up thing that I do consistently is, hey, for me, it would be great if you could just give me at least one, one thing that you would have liked to 
see it be different or that I could have done more of or less of, you know, even one would be a big help. The one, that specific ask, asking for one makes it more likely that they'll actually give me something constructive that I can use because otherwise, you know, I say this humbly, people like me and they don't want to necessarily give me constructive feedback. They don't want to make me feel bad. But when I say, Hey, I insist to every, every client I partner with, give me one thing because I'm always looking to get better. Usually I can get something and that helps me refine my craft, do better next time. The second thing is just constantly being creative on ways to add value. So slowly raising the fee for me has meant not just coming in for 45 minutes to an hour and turning around and leaving. If I'm going to charge huge dollars, maybe it's a custom handout for the company. Maybe it's a hype video. Maybe it's willing to stay 20 extra minutes for an executive roundtable where we talk to the leaders. But, you know, for me, I have released this ego of this is the rate of my speech and rather this is my rate. How can I add value right within within boundaries? And then last but not least, I admire the advice that some people give about, you know, when you get to a certain point, just double your fees, double your fees. I could never do that. I can never do that. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, but for me, the mindset that that created was not healthy. So I had to increase incrementally. I never doubled it and I never will. The toll it would have taken on feeling misaligned in my mindset wouldn't have been worth it. And so I play the 20% rule, which is if I'm consistently booking at a certain fee, the next time I quote, it needs to be 20% higher than that. And it should catch in my throat a little bit. It should catch in my throat. And if it does, I've said the right number and I'm doing it right. Great advice. Hannah, I'm going to ask you a question that came from a previous guest, our first guest, in, in fact. What are you doing with AI mm-hmm. to help improve your business? Yeah. Oh, gosh, I love AI. I'm, I'm definitely a, a super user, probably you know less so than the majority of people, but I think it has become an integral part of my day. My number one favorite way to use it is in content creation, whether that's a social media post or an email, but I like to use it as a brainstorming partner. I love to write. I think I have a very unique voice. I do not let AI write for me, but sometimes I would like to explain an idea and I want a metaphor or an analogy. And so I'm constantly thinking, okay, what what could, it's another way of explaining this. For the book, I remember I was trying to describe this idea that something is better because it's raw and less perfect. And we actually may even pay more for it or find it more valuable. And so AI gave me some of the obvious stuff, right? Pottery, paintings, we've heard those. And then it said artisanal bread. And I was like, ooh, that's good, right? And that made it into the final book. It's the best brainstorming partner. And then I'll also just say, you know, summarizing meeting notes, some of those administrative things. Hey, I'd love to create a post and I want something to start with please synthesize this presentation that I have into a post using this format, right? Hook, a story, an example, actionable takeaway. And it gives me a great starting point. Then I can go in and kind of add my voice, but I do both of those things every single day and I love it. Yeah, late night, if you're working on a keynote and you get a little bit stumped and it's uh, 3 a.m. and phone a friend doesn't work, (laughs) AI is great to ask for a little advice. My friend's Um, name is Claude and he's always available. (laughs) Exactly. exactly. So what question would you like to ask a future guest on this show? Oh, I love that you have this pay it forward model on the questions. So I once heard a quote, only once you're sitting still, can you truly be moved? And so the question I would love to ask your next guest is, what is one instance of when slowing down or sitting still has helped move your speaking business forward? 
I love it. I love it. And just to recap her points, one, embrace the good awkward as a strength, not as a weakness. Two, lean into your community is another really good resource to help you learn of those industries you may not be familiar with. NSA, their Facebook group and other social channels and their vaults are great places to start. And as well as all those friends you call speakers and all those speakers you call friends. Number three, move forward with increasing your fee when it feels right for you for the value you feel that it's right. And also just keep moving forward. Okay, well, Henna, before we get out of the water, make sure to join us at speakernomics.com and let your voice be heard. Thank you to leadershipbooks.com for sponsoring this episode of Speakernomics. This has been a fantastic episode with our own Henna Pryor of NSA. NSA Speakernomics is the podcast where you'll learn to speak, get paid, repeat. We'll see you soon. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.